Welcome to the Grassroots Government Podcast. We know it's been a while, but also things have been kind of slow on the state level. Uh, Joining me right now, Carl Wiggers, my co-host and the person who's going to ask the stupid questions that I won't. Joe Mapes, the Louisiana Farm Bureau Legislative Specialist and Louisiana Farm Bureau National Affairs Coordinator, Andy Brown. So let's just get right into it. I know, Joe, we're in the middle of a special session just for redistricting. We're going to talk about that in a moment. However, we've got a regular session coming up and a surplus what, $900 million that the legislature's going to be able to just spend as they see fit? They can just give it to me. <laughs> Isn't that easy, Jim? Who'd have thunk it, Avery? Um, just two years ago, uh, we were on the precipice, you know, financial cliff. Oh, yeah, that fiscal cliff was right there. That's exactly right. And now it looks like we're going to have somewhere around a $900 million surplus. Uh, we've got $2.5 I mean, billion left over from COVID federal dollars from last year. Once we apply all that, again, we're going to have that $900 billion surplus. Million or billion? Sorry. Million or billion dollar surplus? Million. Million with an M. I'd say that's a lot of money if it's billion. It's 900 million is a lot. Did I say billion? I thought I thought I heard billion, but I was just thinking that's crazy. Still, no, it's, 900 million. That's that's 2.5 billion coming. 2.5 billion with a B left over in COVID money from last year. And we're going to have $900 million with an M okay. for surplus in the state's budget. Thank you. And burning a hole in their pocket. <laughs> I can help them with that. Well, uh, I'm going to agree with Andy. <laughs> well, what happens when, when the legislature's washed with cash? I mean, you, you, we don't have to fight over who's going to get this piece of the pie, that piece of the pie. Right. So it's good and bad. So there's not that infighting where everybody's, you know, when, when we have plenty of money for everybody gets, you know, some roads and bridges money and some programs and services money. Uh, yeah, but then, you know, the idle hands are the devil's tools. So they're sitting around and we're going to, they, they, they're there to be uh, into debate class or whatever. I mean, you know, that's that type of individual up there. So they're going to bring up these social issues, you know, just the same ones that, that you saw last year and maybe one or two more uh, vaccine mandates, uh, transgender, you know, sports, uh, stuff like that, you know, and, uh, and, and who knows what's, what's next as far as the social issues. But I, th- I predict that it's going to be a relatively calm session for poly- you know, for business and industry and agriculture specifically, uh, unless some of those social issues spill over onto workforce issues. Is that, is that, that likely to happen or is that something that, you know, I think it's, it all possible. depends on how a particular company is managed. And when it comes to Farm Bureau, uh, I it, it was impressive to watch how this company has been managed through this plan. This what do they call it? Pandemic. I'm sorry, I said pandemic. I didn't mean to say that. Joe, come on now. <laughs> um, so what you you kind of talking social issues? Are there any ag specific concerns out there? I know you you just said a lot of social issues that could spill over. Well, into you, ag. Take, you take a mandate, any type of a mandate that might come down, and you know, in regard mask mandate, vaccine mandate. I mean, you know, they got close to it. Uh, the the country did, and many companies are still going in that direction. But Farm Bureau uh, chose not to go in that direction. And you see the vaccine mandates are backing off from many parts over many parts of the country and the world for that matter. So that that's the type of, you Spill know, over kind that, of yeah, that's the type that I'm talking about right what, there. What about ag specific policies or discussions that are going to be happening or that are maybe already kind of rumbling out there that 
maybe of concern to our, our membership. Yeah, transportation, that sort of thing. You know, I think we're going to have some land issues uh, is what I think. And the main reason I think we're going to have them is because we've got hurting budgets, uh, local uh, budgets mainly. And, and for a good example is road fees, which are really taxes. So if you want to travel a, 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 an agricultural truck through a parish, in some parishes you might have two or three fees that you've got to pay from one side to the other. Um, I was talking with Representative Jack McFarland, who's the chairman of the Ag Committee in the House, but he's also a logger and owns owns a logging business. So uh, I asked him, I said, what's your number one as a landowner? You know, what's your number one issue? And he said, road fees. So think about it. If you're trying to get to the to the mill, which mm-hmm. is another issue, and you've got to go through several parishes, uh, it could be a problem. Are these like so, tolls? They, yes, they are. And, and they're per parish. So there's no uniformity. So it's not like the state put in a, a, a table of fees. So you can go through one town. There, there's more than one town that will go out before your truck comes through and take a picture of the potholes on the road. And then after your truck goes through, take another picture. Okay. And then charge you for that station and then have another station to get out, you know, of the parish. Hmm. So, wow. I didn't know that. I didn't yeah. know that was going on. What? So is there a policy that might come up about that, like a, to kind of regulate that a little bit or I guess standardize something? Not that I'm not that I'm aware of. It's so this just, is still the early rumbling stages before anything gets drafted. Yes. Yes. You know, and, and look, land's been an issue uh, two years ago. Was it? No, it was last year. A bill got filed to to put five dollars tax per acre on timberland. I mean, they're already, you know, having trouble, but. Uh, th- this that would devastate the industry, and we talked to the author. We had breakfast with him up in uh, up in North Louisiana, and uh, he agreed to not run with the bill, but he wasn't happy about it. I'm going to tangent. And the reason you. he did it, he told me, because his he they got no money back in his district, nothing to tax, nothing but woods. So they figured, why not tax the woods? I'm going to tangent you for a moment, only because we had a presentation yesterday from the uh, the Equine Promotion Board. And uh, some of what they're hoping to do to possibly get some some funding for that. I know you represent quarter horses, so uh, how how well do you think that's going to be received? The the request for funding for that board. You, if you're talking about the uh, sports betting dollars, yes. well, you never know until you sit down and talk. But there's going to be plenty of sports betting dollars. Uh, it's all going to depend on the amount of money requested. Um, you know. I was part of helping draft that piece of legislation. And then when it got amended, redraft it back to its original position. And one of the things that I insisted that was in there is that the private horse industry was in there. And we didn't just rely on government money because yeah, let's talk about that right now. Say, I think they requested $5 million yesterday. Okay. I, I didn't hear a budget, but my point is what if it's only for one year and it runs out? I can tell you in 2023, we're not going to have a $900 million surplus in the state of Louisiana. Million dollar surplus, Carl. It's going to be the precipice. We're going to be falling off of it. Seriously, I'm not being funny, but 2023 is going to be miserable financially in Louisiana. Is that because we're sitting high on the hog right now and then we're not really on taking COVID steps? Funds. I mean, the, the oil industry, the bottom fell out of it a couple of years back when the COVID hit. It hasn't bounced back. Um, I've been talking to legislators that said, you know, they're just trying to stop the hemorrhaging from membership. You know, loss in the in the associations, and and so it's hard to even do anything for the oil and gas industry. You know, because uh, these days, 
I had two legislators tell me if, if, if an oil and gas association takes the wrong position on a bill or something like that or any issue publicly, they're going to start losing membership. So those are the kind of times we're living in right now that the oil and gas industry is not served very well because of the nature of, of, of what's going on in the world. Uh, but until that gets back up to, I think, a solid, I think we're uh, the budget's based on $53 a barrel uh, and stays there. And we're at 84 right now. Yeah. But it, we're back to the monies. Is it permanent? Uh, is it one time? Or is it, you know, a revenue stream that goes over time? So let's get back to the equine. That's why I insisted having private in the bill, because we need a revenue stream over time. We need a commitment from the horse industry to say, yes, I'll pay an X amount per year or whatever. But we can't rely on the state because the state's going to be broke sooner than later. And if that's our only funding, then our program is nothing. Well, I think our organization typically takes that stance on a lot. You know, if you have one time money, let's not put it in perpetuity and create a beast that we can't feed down the road, you know, so that is similar to what we're, we're going to be fighting for, for the ag center. Is it not Joe, that we want to see this one-time money go to infrastructure and uh, facility improvements and doing things that you spend one time. And then, you know, things it doesn't that you can take, point to and say, that's what we got. Right. And it, you know, there, everything comes with a cost down the road, you know, facilities and so forth, but not at the, the millions of dollars that they're, they're going to be asking for this session. No, I, I agree. Uh, but that's a nice uh, segue into the into the uh, ag center budget, which is vitally important to us because you know uh, research and extension, getting that information out to the farmers, it's invaluable. Uh, you know, so we we just want everybody to know that's listening how important the ag center is. It's probably every year. It's probably Farm Bureau's number one issue, legislatively and politically. Well, and we. Our our members, our farmers, put their money where their mouth is when it comes to the ag center too. We have our checkoff programs that heavily fund uh, the research and that you know that year over year uh, money, as well as the legislature. Certainly, much more aligned share than what farmers can provide through their checkoff dollars. But uh, I, I'll tell you, we're having a real struggle in the state of keeping good researchers because our facilities are so poor because our our salaries are not competitive with neighboring states. So uh, that's the kind of message that I know you've been preaching. We, we're, all, uh, we're all trying to show that uh, it, it takes some, you know, you got to be competitive even in that market. People don't, just because it's LSU doesn't mean that we're going to keep the kind of scientists and teachers and administrators that we need to be a top university in, in ag research. And you know, it's a it's a priority to maintain that relationship and have the extension service and be able the extension service be able to do what it needs to do and the college be able to do what it needs to do. And, uh, you know, that that extension service is, is super important to us. Yeah. Just yesterday, whenever Dr. Mike Selassie was giving his report to the Louisiana Farm Bureau Board of Directors, he mentioned several retirements and a few people leaving to go to other universities. Open positions. Yeah. Yeah. yeah one who is someone I've worked with for years at the LSU Ag Center. And to know that this person's going over to Texas, that's disappointing. Yep. That's disappointing because this, this person's a really good researcher, a really good person. Our best that. and our brightest leading. Yeah. And it's, it, it's sad when that happens. And that's where the use of these one-time monies to improve facilities could be an incentive to get these people to, to hang around. 
Well, and I, I was at a meeting last week and heard the speaker. I asked him a question about this very thing, and he was he was very strong uh, in his support of the Ag Center and and wanting to help us with some of these uh, priorities on getting them some funding. So that oh, was no, encouraging. we're fortunate to have a speaker that is uh, in such strong support of agriculture. Can I just ask? Uh, so, are we talking about like investing in like combines and offices and? stuff like that. So it's almost, you could almost draw an equivalent. Say, I'm not trying to compare LSU athletics and LSU, whatever, but it's almost like Mm -hmm. making a nice locker room or a good weight room for these researchers to come in and and be able to do their jobs. Is that kind of the same type of thing, like a recruiting? But it's also ability to perform their jobs like a microscope or a particular type of equipment and 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 some of that can be I, I agree with Andy the facilities it's just like I think that's a great analogy locker room you know who wants to go in a nasty locker room and play for that team right so I mean that's so that it's it's kind of the same type of thing yeah, is that yeah what, is I that would what we're say. well and at? it's also I mean that's why our organization takes a stance it's also like on a farm when you have a good year and you have you know you finally make a little profit then you go to try to upgrade your equipment or you try to put a little money back and do some things that you you weren't able to do in other years but as Joe was saying earlier, if, if we fund a bunch of things that don't have, uh, you know, that, that need the same amount of money every year with one-time money, we're going to be right back at that fiscal cliff and be mm. cutting budgets and being, you know, getting rid of these people that we're trying to recruit. So you gotcha. can't have that. Got you. And right now, what we're trying to do is cut up the state into different districts. That's what's going on at the Capitol now. What's the sentiment like there, Joe, considering uh, there, there was – a request by the governor to create two new majority minority districts for, or create two, not two new, but two majority minority Convert, districts. Basically, yeah. For uh, for our congressional map, our U.S. congressional map, but there are some changes being made on the state senate map as I'm well. I'm going to pull a uh, before Carl even has to ask one of his famous "What's going on?" questions. <laughs> just a point of order, as they would say, where Joe uh, operates every day. This redistricting session is a special session that's going on right now, separate from the the session, the regular session that we're talking about coming up later in March. But anyway, go ahead, Joe, for all those (laughs) questions that that Avery asked. Redistricting (laughs) session, go. You know, um, looking at the plans being offered, the maps being offered out of both the House and the Senate, I would say that the legislature is doing and has done the best job that they possibly can with the population, with the population shift, 20, only 23% of the population is North of Opelousas. Is that hard to believe? Mm -hmm. Not if you drive to Bossier back when your cell phone doesn't work ever the whole trip, but then you can believe it. But there's only 23% of the population that is above Opelousas. So they're, they're, they're uh, both plans, the House and the Senate agree on on removing the Northwest Parish, the Senate uh, Senate uh, District. Barrow Peacock has that now, and he's term limited, so that that won't hurt him. Uh, um, then there's another one, Kenny hey, Cox. Let me on. interrupt real quick. So wait, we're redistricting state districts and congressional districts? Yes. Yep. Correct. That's, That's a right. lot. Okay, I'm sorry. That's, That's right. what you were doing. What well, since you want to go even back to further basics, every ten years we are required mm-hmm. to do this yep. according to the census, and that's what the redistricting is based on: is population, mm-hmm. demographics, race, all of that type of stuff. So, just going back to my ignorance, we're doing state, senate, and house seats mm-hmm. as well as congressional 
House districts. That's what you're talking about, the two minority majority districts. Correct. We only we currently have one. Correct. And that's Troy Carter Carter's district. And that's what that so there's that's what that I'm sorry. That's what I'm trying to make sure. So we're talking about congressional districts with the two majority majority minorities. And then Joe, you're also talking about some Senate districts that are moving around. Yeah. They're going to become majority minority as well. Oh, are they? That that's mm-hmm. also in in that. Yeah, that's, gerrymandering that's knows no bounds when it comes. <laughs> Nor to does it know race. That is the quote of the century. Gerrymandering knows no bounds. Well, I'm also trying to keep state and congressional stuff straight. So, right. Anyways, so so um, there are two you. separate bills. It's a good question with two you know two different maps in them: congressional in one and state house and senate in the other. And the legislature has to come to an agreement on, you know, all the plans coming out of both houses. One, and, and like I said, I think we're going to come to that. Mark, we've been traveling the state and talk to these legislators all the time and watching this process. Again, I think they're doing the best job that they pe- possibly can uh, with the population shift that's happened. And um, they've got to come to an agreement and send it to the governor. And the governor, if he agrees it, then it goes into, if he doesn't veto it or just lets it go into law, then, you know, that's what happens. It goes into law. Now, if he vetoes it, then uh, the legislature will take it to court and they'll they'll sue and say, look, we think we got a good plan here. That recently happened, I think, as recently as last week in Alabama, our neighbor state, and the lower court uh, agreed with to, to squash the legislature's plan. So it went to the appeals court and uh, went up to the Supreme Court somehow, but bottom line is the Supreme Court agreed with us. Us okay? being legislature? Uh, yes, th- that's exactly right. Wow. So we have that precedent in Alabama to point to if we do have to take it to court. That, that the legislators. That the Supreme Court in Alabama agreed with the legislature and that they, they said that the legislature presented a fair plan. So- uh, if that if that all broke down, then the U.S. Justice Department would ultimately take over, and they would apply their own maps. Oh, so this is happening in all fifty states right now. Yes, every what ten a crazy years. time to live. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a wonderful have, time I mean, to I be guess, alive. How is this affecting like the congressional? I mean, what's what's going on with congressional? Is that look like that's moving forward to meet the governor's request of two minority majorities? No. <laughs> no, we're we're uh, we're hopeful and signs, I think, point to Joe that we're, you know, we're looking to maintain the integrity of what we have now. Uh, I would just say from my perspective, that would be a great thing just because we've had a lot of turnover in our congressional delegation in the last few years, mm-hmm. losing, losing Dr. Abraham, uh, losing uh, Mr. Richmond to the White House. So we're getting Congresswoman Letlow, Congressman Carter. Uh, they're having relationships with Garrett Graves, Clay Higgins, Mike Johnson, the Whip, Steve Scalise. Yeah. You know, it. We have a good group that works together, that works with us as an organization. So with a um, with a varied experience, also, mm-hmm. also true, and and a wide variety of committees that they serve on, and and just the seniority that you need. You know, we have term limits in these House and Senate districts that factor into that redistricting. But uh, we don't have that in U.S. Congress, and so it's uh, it's important to have uh, some continuity there as we go forward. I I did speak to one office this morning uh, that that told me you know that that kind of that same message that they don't get too involved. They want the the people's house in the state to do its job, but uh, they certainly want to maintain their jobs in D.C. and and serve the people that they were voted to serve. 
and you're going to be speaking with a lot of them over the next week or so, uh, setting up meetings for our young farmers and ranchers. Yeah, it's been a wild week uh, trying to put together our young farmers, uh, uh, what I'm calling a DC drive-in. We typically <laughs> do a DC fly-in and, and carry them up there and let them visit with their elected officials. It's always a great experience for them. We hadn't been able to do a whole lot of that last two years, as we've reported on this before. Uh, and still, DC's got some of those wonderful social issues and mandates and things that make it very difficult to... Uh, it's not to, as fun to go to D.C. as it used to be, right? No, it's not the same. And it's not just mandates. The the, the whole place is just a ghost town. The I, Capitol I, breach last year is still a, a you know, security uh, concern. And, you know, it's just it's Washington, D.C. There's always reasons to, to have concern. But anyway, back to our, our young farmers. Uh, I'm proud of them. They as anything with our organization, they told us what they wanted to do mm -hmm. and said, you know, we don't think we can get the best experience for our organization's dollar in DC right now. So we just would prefer stay home. But they also said, we can't go another year without engaging, you know, flexing our advocacy muscle and, and getting some communication with our congressional delegation. And so I went to calling and went to working, uh, at, and I could tell that we hadn't been up there in a while. It's just, you know, when you don't communicate with somebody mm -hmm. as regularly in person and have those relationships, uh, you lose a little of that. But because and, and faces change there, too. Yeah. Thankfully, we've had, you know, fairly consistent um, work with with these offices. But um, but yeah, it, it's. It's always a, a rotating uh, Rolodex in D.C., but um, thankfully. You know, it's it's not me. It's that that name that's at the bottom of my email signature that gets their attention, and uh, especially for our young farmers, that our our delegation always wants to hear from the next generation and and serve them. So it's what we're looking to do uh, next week is have. Uh, so we actually have quite a few now of our delegation. I'm up to three members that think they have the time in district to come by here and and visit with them in the flesh. And then uh, if we, we can't do that, we'll do some virtual options for them and American Farm Bureau and some other to kind of give that fly-in experience. But we're going we're gonna to do it from the great state of Louisiana. So it's exciting. Who is uh, going to be able to meet with them uh, in person? Uh, Avery, I don't want to over-promise <laughs> and under-deliver, so I'm going to keep that under my hat because uh, as At least Joe said before, there. Carl hit record. If it's on this mic, it's uh, it could show up somewhere. So I'll just say that we have a senator and two congressmen that claim they can be here next week. So we'll stay tuned. Cool. We'll we'll use that as the teaser. You have to actually be here to find out who who you get to see in person. Well, Ellen, we we have some news that came out of D.C. this week that we want to visit with them about, and that's uh, this announcement of climate smart commodities mm -hmm. uh, priority of Secretary Vilsack and the Biden administration as we. It's been a while since we've been on this pod, but that has not changed. Climate is the first thing out of their mouths every day of the week, you know, multiple times a day. And they finally have their baby that they've announced in this climate smart commodities, at least as far as agriculture is concerned. Uh, concern is, is probably the uh, appropriate word for me, how I feel about it right now, just because it's a billion dollars that they think can be uh, delegated out to folks in a very short amount of time. And uh, so far, that's the money where they want to put electric car charging stations everywhere. 
No, that's a separate. I was in the infrastructure bill. This uh, this pot of money is actually just standing USD, USDA money out of the CCC fund, where we've seen other uh, disaster money and MFP payments and other things come from. It's supposed to be the safety net, and that's a, that's in question already. As to so it's the like whole, a rainy day fund, uh, somewhat. It's supposed to. We can just call it that for simplicity's sake, but uh, it's at the discretion of the secretary. And I was just wondering what triggers it. You know, it's locked up. What allows it to be used? Certain well, disaster declarations and stuff can trigger some of that, right? Well, yeah, I don't want to get into the the details there, but that's that actually is in question. It was in question when they used it for MFP when the Republicans were in power, and now. You know, this. Yeah, well, I didn't want to open up a can of worms. I was just actually curious. It's always oh, in no. question, but. I'm okay with opening up a can of worms <laughs> because here's you, you mentioned they want to get this out in pretty quick order. Right? Yeah, it's like and, a month and a week that you can apply for it. So, well, let me we hold on. Let me oh. be clear. Not you as a farmer individually apply for it. What's going on right now is a grant writing process for organizations to say, we know how to come up with a climate program, give us the money, and we'll distribute it to farmers and ranchers who meet these set requirements. Here's where my ire is coming in, Andy. You're wanting to get this money out to organizations quickly, but yet we had disasters two years ago that you still haven't paid on. That's you're you're preaching to the choir. I'm I'm uh, I'm right there with you. Uh, we've and since then we've had other non necessarily disaster programs, but other programs that still aren't out either. We still don't have a state executive director and, mm-hmm. you know, appointments to be made. But as I let off saying, this is their priority every day of the week and they're the administration and they get to choose what they do and don't uh, cut checks on or um, have their county offices in each of our parishes administer. So that's the way that we're going. But I don't want to be totally negative about it. Uh, it could be much worse. It could be mandates to do these practices and that, you know, we've been engaged and we've been at the table through American Farm Bureau to at least help steward some of this as voluntary practices and, you know, opting in and mm-hmm. and there could be some benefit of of private organizations administering this and not, you know, these yeah. agencies that are struggling to get money out the door right now. And one of those we heard from yesterday, the Grazing Lands Coalition. Department I mean, of Ag and Forestry, I'm sure they'll be submitting it. All of our sister commodity organizations, I, I don't know. American Farm Bureau may be writing one for Farm Bureau. That's it is the definition of uh, open season on this money right now. Andy, outside of just your national affairs hat you wear, you also oversee a handful of commodities. You interact with farmers on the daily. What are you hearing from some of those guys about? You know this. I mean, you've been here. We've been hearing it for a year now. This climate, 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 climate. What are farmers saying about about this push? Well, as I said, we've been at the table. So one good thing about this is it's not a, you don't have to do necessarily new practices to to be eligible for this when it comes out. I mean, I th- we had a, a a visitor at the board meeting yesterday that said it pretty well that we're we're building the airplane while it's in flight. So I can't mm-hmm. I can't tell you exactly how it's going to go, but I will say, commodity organizations, Farm Bureau all have said uh, we don't want to punish those people who've been climate smart for decades. Right. And I would tell you that that's the majority of our people. 
Do they all do all the practices that are going to be listed in the handbook that are, quote, climate smart? No, but they're never going to because guess what? In South Louisiana, if you're in a rice and crawfish rotation, you probably aren't going to no-till every single year. At some turn, some time, you're going to have to turn over that dirt. Or, you know, we could go through the commodities, but there's exceptions to these rules. I heard another another guest yesterday in the, in the board meeting at Louisiana Farm Bureau make the comment, you know, it's kind of hard to get behind some of this because we've been doing it for decades. That, yeah. that exact thing. Well, that was Richard Fontenot, third vice president, who brought that up, bringing up the Master Farmer Program, the Master Gardener Program, the Master Cattleman Program, all of these programs that we've already done to be sustainable. And to, to show our work. Yeah. Show our work of what we've been doing, what farmers have been doing to to be sustainable and to be climate smart. Well, this shows the value of organizations and being uh, organized because our leaders have thought ahead. A lot of these sister commodity organizations have commodity specific quantitative data analysis to show the value of what we are already doing and have been doing. Um, you know, Cotton Trust Protocol is one mm-hmm. that we we are a shining star in Louisiana. The rice, uh, USA Rice has quite the sustainability portfolio in their annual report. Uh, the list goes on. We, we're quantifying it. We've been doing it. We've said this is coming. Here it is. And, you know, so we'll, we'll be at the table. I'm sure we'll uh, reap some benefits from it. But uh, we also hope to have our government do it in a, an efficient way. And I have some concerns about how that's going to be You don't done. think the government's the most efficient? All the time? I'll just uh, cue back up Avery and, and bring up disaster, <laughs> well, but I digress. <laughs> well, I, I'm yeah. I mean, obviously, disaster payments and, and that sort of thing, government has not handled that as, as quickly as our farmers and ranchers need. But this is some of the policy that we've discussed before. But just uh, this past January, the American Farm Bureau Federation changed up some of its beef policy as well. And so with all that's been going on with investigations into what the the big meat processing companies are doing. Uh, what 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 changed and where do we stand right now, Andy? Yeah, I'll be brief on it. This is really just to, to highlight our policy process and uh, how things, you know, we just because we set it in policy one year doesn't mean we have to, you know, that's why we do it annually so we can continue to evolve and, uh, and be involved in how the, you know, the legislation follows our policy. But our delegates at American Farm Bureau last year came up with some beef uh, priorities or really livestock priorities on how we can get some of these high grocery prices back to the farmer and not be caught up at the uh, large conglomerates of, of meat packers. Uh, and there's there's no silver bullet on that, and that's what we've seen. And so our policy changed a little bit. We had a, a Senate bill that was getting some traction that had some, some mandates in it for uh, what what happens in in the cash market in cattle but uh since then we thought a little different of it so we're uh we're working those things but i think it's a complicated issue but i'll just say it just shows the the necessity of being involved and staying involved in our process that can get mundane i think joe i think that uh, is going to be important this legislative session too to be have our people be involved and and stay active and and do some advocating, you were saying earlier. So we may be proactive in the state house this year too and need your help. Thank yeah. Thanks for teeing that up because we are gonna have an issue. We're not gonna discuss it here today because we don't want to let anybody that might have a problem with us moving a bill forward know about it at this point. But 
Andy, you were talking earlier about the value of an association. Okay, so when this issue comes, this session, it's going to be the perfect opportunity for every member to participate through voter voice, whatever, telephone calls, personal visit to a legislator's district office. But here's what I need everybody that's listening to this podcast to do. Don't say this issue doesn't affect me and my commodity or I'm in insurance. You know, I'm in insurance or I'm an insurance member and I don't see how dairy commodity affects my daily life. Okay. If you're a dairy farmer, don't say, I don't see how sugarcane farmers issues affect my life. And even if they don't, even if they don't, and may never will pick up the gauntlet. Okay. Go with your brothers and sisters and the other commodities. Cause one day you're going to need it and you're going to want the full weight and support of farm bureaus family behind you and your issue. So when we ask you to participate, this year, it's not, we don't ask you to participate members unless it's a heavy lift and we need some help. That's why we're asking for help because we need it. So do what headquarters or anybody asks you, uh, help out, participate, make sure that we're at the table. Cause you know what happens if we're not at the table, Carl, you miss dinner. No. Wow. Now you're the table, not you're the on table, the menu. You're, yeah, you're you're on the menu. We typically yeah. say that at the very end. I don't know, I know. if we're I, ending. I, just, I, just, I don't know no. if we're ending, but no, I need to I go through throw, some dates. I haven't thrown out my hand grenade yet. Uh, real quick, let's go some dates real quick. When does this special session end? Okay, we're all familiar. Oh, the special session? Yeah. Maybe today. Oh, uh, uh, just as soon as they wrap, as soon as they yeah, figure yeah, it yeah. out. Yeah, the, the bill came, the bill was coming out the Senate, no problem. The House basically was okay with the Senate bill. And then the, the House bill came out yesterday. So they but could February end February 20th was the, am I Absolute, right? The day yeah, the they scheduled. Yeah. But mm-hmm. when, when does regular session begin? I'm okay. talking about participations. I want to put some dates yeah. on people's radar. We're all familiar with the Ides of March. Mm-hmm. And so that's March 15th. The day before that, the session starts on March 14th and it goes to June 6th. So it's an 85-day Katie Bar the Door session, which means it's not related to fiscal matters, fiscal matters of the state only, any uh, amount of legislation, any number of bills can be filed on any number of issues gotcha. affecting all. So profession. March 14, March 14th. Yes. Got you. And you talked about the YFNR event. Can we just say a date? We have a date for that. Is it February the 18th, February the 18th, Friday. one week from today, but a more oh. general date, uh, for, for my full membership that I'd like to throw out is the November 22 election, because I'm going to just go ahead and tee that up for future pods. That's going to change the game as far as this next farm bill goes. And that's what I'll probably be talking about on these pods for the next six Mm. to eight months. Good topic. um, (laughs) If you're looking ahead, I'm going to let Joe have all the, uh, the strength of the organization for a few months as far as the heavy lifts and picking up the gauntlet. But I got a national gauntlet coming. It's called the go. 23 Farm Bill. So mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. stay in tune because we're, we're getting ready. 23 farm, farm Bill, meaning it's supposed to go into effect in January of 23? Yeah, it expires. So this it's farm be bill written expires this year. in, I think, August or September of 23. So okay. but we're, we're fixing to get the pen. So you have paper. a new bill January of 24? No, 23. 23? If we, we can't have the Farm Bill expire or all the programs that we rely on go away. Gotcha. So it'll be written between now and, and now in August, August, yeah, September 23. of 23. Gotcha. Okay. And they have done extensions before. So that's... Yeah, we're not going to mention the dirty yeah. extension word, but, <laughs> but we'll, gotcha. we'll see. So February 18th, next Friday is when the YFNR yeah. committee will be here. 
Yeah, and we'll get back on the pod, and I'll follow up with what we heard from our offices on yeah. that. It would be a, a really exciting deal uh, to hear from them. And then, as I said, we'll be uh, you'll be hearing from me about Farm Bill priorities as we go. And, and we've got my whole team down there, Brian, Ron, Kyle, Jim, everybody's uh, going to be engaged in that process. Get all hands and, on and deck. We'll need the there. You know, convention time in June. We'll need some, some policy and priorities to, so, you know, if you're out there in your parish, Go ahead and be chalking us up some policy uh, for June. Okay, hand grenade time, guys. Oh, good. So we're going to take off our political party hats. We're going to take off our... We're going to do away with whatever our feelings might be about certain issues and look at political strategy for just a moment, okay? We've got a Senate race here in the state of Louisiana that's coming up. John Neely Kennedy, he is the incumbent. Luke Mixon is one of his challengers. And the other? Gary Chambers. That's right. Who has released two incendiary commercials. One in which he is smoking marijuana, or claims to be smoking marijuana. I don't know. I wasn't there. Couldn't smell it. Did not test what he was smoking. In the second, he is burning the Confederate flag. Now, regardless of your feelings about marijuana or Confederate flags, let's talk about the shock strategy that's going on there and how that could play out. Because you have Luke Mixon, who is trying to follow the John Bell Edwards strategy on military background. I'm a blue dog Democrat, pro-life, pro-gun, and following that same strategy as a Democrat going up against, against an incumbent Republican who has received a lot of media attention. Does Gary Chambers' strategy work? Well, I would tell you that a uh, president of the United States, uh, the last go around, got it to work for one election and then he tried it again a second time in bucking the system and now joe biden's our president so you know it might work it might not how what you do once you get the office depends on how it works Mm -hmm. a second time but i mean there's been people in history but the probability there that it works is less than the other strategy i guess is it would be my take i think you should have stuck with the weed (laughs) And the reason being is he probably would have picked up a significant portion of people ages 18 to 65 that smoke weed, but don't tell anybody that they do it. Okay. But when he stepped over the line and burned the Confederate flag, I'm not saying he alienated that entire group of 18 to 65, but that is very divisive. Okay. Weed, it's more like come together. Let's all sit around a campfire and smoke (laughs) weed together. Okay. But, now you know, we know what Joe does on the weekends. <laughs> but but seriously, I mean, we all know about weed. It brings people together and yeah. ripping a uh, any any flag. Doesn't have right. to be the Confederate flag. Ripping any flag, you're you're immediately disenfranchising the second part the, the second part of that flag. You know. Yeah, and he he really. I mean, those are platform issues that he's bucking the system on. I guess my analogy to former President Trump. Trump. He was less issue-based and more just drain the swamp. I'm not a career politician. I mean, you know, to me, 
um, that's a social issue. Mm-hmm. Okay, the Confederate flag, and we don't necessarily we don't send people to Congress and the legislature. At least I don't to deal with social issues. I deal with them myself, me and my family. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, they're there at the legislature and Congress, but you know, <laughs> uh, we send them there to deal with much more important things like our safety. You know, mainly our safety. Where I send them there. Where I think it's interesting is if you're going to look at the history of elections in this state uh, over the past, what, since since Bobby Jindal came into office, 2008, we've definitely seen a red shift. So now you're seeing elections that are going to be split 65-35, okay? So if you are already there thinking, I've got to make a runoff some way and you have someone who's trying to eat into that conservative side luke mixon who's trying to appeal to the the moderates there but is going to try to depend on all of the left then you have a gary chambers who is just making national waves i mean this got national attention how is that going to eat away at your ability to make it into that runoff if you're Luke Mixon? And does this guarantee more so uh, a, a re-election for John Neely Kennedy? It's purely from a strategy standpoint. From a strategy standpoint, I think it helps John Kennedy get more focus on him and raise more money. Okay, I don't see Gary Chambers' strategy working. I think Gary, Ch- I think Gary Chambers' uh position and recognition nationally in the race overshadows Mixon to a large degree. Mm-hmm. So unfortunately, what I see setting up is Kennedy going back in at a very high percentage rate unless somebody else gets in that race that I, we haven't heard of. And I'm going to predict Kennedy goes back in at, in the 70s. I'm just going to say this is the kind of conversation that happens almost on the daily because Avery is a polit- like he is he, he doesn't let on that he's that into it. When he gets down to like the political science and like how elections work, he you can tell he's covered at least a couple of well, cycles. I love what this he gets pro- way into this. Stuff. Well, but I love the approach that he took. His strategy. People ask me all the time how you know I'm such an effective lobbyist. It's strategy, mm-hmm. okay? And I got to take emotion out of the decision. So if you come up to me and you say any intimidation is very successful for a lot of people around the capital process. Doesn't work on me though, because I am able to take my ta- my emotions and set them aside mm-hmm. and focus purely and only on strategy. Because guess what? I can come in with my tail tucked between my legs in front of the Farm Bureau board and say, well, I lost because they were really intimidating over there. Or they were mean to me. Guess what? They don't care. They're going to get a new lobbyist. They can get over there and win. And you know, that's all there is to it. Well, and my take, I, I don't get involved. I, I don't even like to know who's running because at the end of the day, whoever's elected, my job is to go up there, keep ag as my number one priority. Mm-hmm. And I'm one of many, many that they're going to have to think about and deal with. We don't endorse candidates, mm-hmm. you know, with congressional races, so on. So I have no incentive for what I do for this organization to, to get much involved in elections whatsoever. Yeah, and I agree with you, but it's a personal thing with me and Avery. Yeah. You know, it's kind of like gosh, whittling, I just love watching or... the fight, man. Well, <laughs> I, I get asked every day. I got asked multiple times this week about this very election. And, you know, I think people look at me like, you're supposed to know all this, but I purposefully don't look into it because I, I don't want to dislike them so much when they get elected 
that I don't want to go sit down with them and work on our issues with them. And so they're just, you know, Senator so-and-so and let's see what we no, can do to help you. farmers. And we have the same feeling and a lot of, you know, generally, you know, we got to work with the end result. We got to work with the winner. You know, that's who we support in every race is mm-hmm. the winner. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, but, uh, you know, we do have to work with the winner every time. It's a good point. But at the same time, it, I I love I do love talking about it. Nobody's listening to me, so it doesn't make a difference, right? But I love talking about it like Avery. It's just a it thr- you, there's only two sports in Louisiana: LSU football and Louisiana politics. That's you know? right, because you know they're Indian- both full contact. <laughs> Indianapolis has the 500. Kentucky has the Derby. Louisiana has politics, and that's that's why I enjoy doing this podcast because it gets us a chance to to talk about it in a very nonpartisan way in a way in which we see what the issues are and what the strategy is behind it. And so with that, uh, I appreciate each and every one of you listening to us. Uh, Andy Brown, Joe Mapes, Carl Wiggers, you know, uh, it's important that we're always at the table because... Because strategy is so important. If you're not at the table, you're on the menu. Well, look, I just wanted to clear something up before we leave. My reference to the Ides of March had nothing to do with the Louisiana legislative process. (laughs) 